Hey, what's good fam? I hope you're doing great. Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan. Uh, I just tried to switch it up a little bit because as I listen to other podcasts, I realize that we start the podcast the exact same way. And every single episode I say, welcome back to Crossing the Jordan. I pray that you're doing great. And it's the same thing over and over. So I gotta try to switch it up somehow. So welcome back. What's good? How you doing? Hope you're having a blessed day. And uh, yeah, it is 7.20 in the morning. Feeling good. Praise the Lord. Come Holy Spirit. And uh, this is an Always More Wednesday episode, and this, I wanted to talk about a specific, uh, an eighth, a potentially eighth capital sin and the opposing virtue. We've talked about in the past a um, the seven capital sins and those seven opposing virtues, and we said it in passing in our last episode on the topic of salvation, the, the most recent one about how God's entire work is entirely for us. And so we could do an entire series on every single uh, vice or sin and the opposing virtue. But um, my wife hooked me up with an amazing book by Dr. Brant Petrie called The Introduction to the Spiritual Life. So Dr. Brant Petrie is an amazing Catholic theologian and scholar who has a, uh, a specialty or an emphasis or expertise in the uh, and Jewish scripture and Jewish tradition. And so he has books such as Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, and Jesus the Bridegroom. And uh, he also has a YouTube channel called Catholic Productions. And they ha- he has like short videos, five to like 12 minutes that comes out weekly. That's amazing as well. Um, so I highly recommend Dr. Brant Petrie. He's one of my favorite, favorite apologists. Um, and you can find his YouTube videos. Uh, it's beautiful. So this book, um, he goes through the spiritual life. And with his background in Jewish scripture and tradition, he builds on uh, what he talks about here. And I'm going to give the table of contents of all the things that he talks about. But what he talks about throughout, he um, uses sac- Jewish scripture. So he gives the foundation of where it's at in Jewish scripture. And sometimes they use Jewish, uh, Jewish, um, uh, Jewish tradition as well to highlight or to illuminate something in Jewish scripture. And also, he t- then he talks about Jesus and his take on it and early Christians and just the Christian tradition. Um, and it's just really beautiful. So this is called, it's a, I think it's his newest book, but it's called The Introduction to the Spiritual Life. And it's 23 chapters. Each one is a super easy read. And it is mind-blowing because he has such depth in his teaching, and yet he simplifies it so much. Like, for example... And one thing that would probably take me like four pages to write, he wrote this pretty profound thing about the our Father, the part of the Our Father where he says, give us this day our daily bread. He says it in about four sentences. <laughs> so it's very simplified and anybody could uh, pick this up and read it. And this whole thing is truly an introduction to the spiritual life. He acknowledges that at the beginning and at the end, that there's so much more. Because the spiritual life has been uh, recognized in, in three different ways or three different parts of the journey. The first part is purgative. When we're first coming to the Lord, when he's, when he's breaking off really bad mortal sin. And, um, and there's beautiful parts of consolation of feeling God's love. And then there's the illuminative way and the unitive way. And the illuminative way is ever deepening in the in the wisdom and the love of God and uh, the continued growth and also in the unitive way getting to that full part where our will is in complete union with God's will and there's this beautiful union of of love 
And so this part, this book, though, he acknowledges is like right in the, the purgative way. But it does such a beautiful job. So he has 23 chapters and it's broken out into four different uh, parts or sections. So the first part is on prayer. And there's three sections on that covering the three types of prayer. First, vocal prayer. Second, meditation. And third, contemplation. Very, very beautiful stuff. And again, this whole episode is about the eighth uh, capital sin or uh, vice and the opposing virtue. But just to give you a little taste of the rest of the book, and uh, for example, in contemplation, he uses uh, Jewish scripture to talk about um, how uh, Moses would speak to God face to face. And the word and the word in Hebrew for face is also presence. So this beautiful intimacy. And then he goes also into um, King David's prayer in Psalm 27, where he says, One thing I have asked for the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. So there's, there's this beautiful prayer of King David uh, seeking God's face, and he wants that intimacy with him. And he has that desire to be in his presence and intimacy and to behold his beauty and his glory. And then another Jewish scripture example is, uh, is Elijah. And this is in 1 Kings 19 when, um, when the, he stood on the mount after hearing the word of the Lord. And he would went there, and he was waiting to hear the voice of the Lord. And it was not in the wind, it was not in the earthquake, and it was not in the fire. But the Lord, after, after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And so it's beautiful, a still, small voice. In Hebrew, that expression is actually a silent, small voice. In other words, God speaks to Elijah in sheer, sheer silence, that the exchange between them transcends human words. And so there's this beautiful intimacy in the Old Covenant. And then Jesus and contemplation. Uh, oh, it's so good. So the example that is given is particularly Martha and Mary. Martha and Mary. Everybody knows this story about Martha who's serving the Lord and she's doing all these things around the house and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Mary has chosen the better portion and I will, and I will not take that away from her. So everybody knows about that, but it's really beautiful. So a, f- a few things that he pointed out is that Mary, it says that she had a sister called Mary, talking about Martha. Mar- Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went to, went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. So this is seeped in Jewish scripture and tradition. So when Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, she is taking the posture of a Jewish disciple listening attentively to the teaching of a rabbi. In uh, the Mishnah, a Jewish, uh, um, a Jewish tradition, it says that uh, the teachers would sit amid the dust of the feet of the rabbis and drink in their words with thirst. And so in this first century Jewish context, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus 
and a, a spirit of posture of a student or a disciple of a rabbi. So Mary is focused on looking at Jesus and listening to his words, attentively, attentively drinking them in. So she is literally doing the work of a student, walking the path of a disciple. And, and Martha, by the way, is the word for distracted literally means to be pulled away or dragged away from. So it's not just her serving is like bad. Jesus calls us to serve, but she allowed it to pull away and to drag her away from Jesus. And it gave her great anxiety. But let's turn back to Mary. Again, she's at the feet of her teacher, her rabbi. She's taking the posture of a student who sits and beholds the face of Jesus and drinks in his words. This is the posture of a student, but also the posture of contemplation. And Jesus calls this the one thing that's necessary. And if we just remembered in Psalm 27, King David, what did he say? That his one desire was to enter into God's presence in the temple, behold his beauty, and inquire about God's word. This is Psalm 27, 4. So too, the one thing necessary that Mary is, is uh, modeling for us is for a disciple of Jesus to sit at his feet, gaze at his face, and listen to his words. And in the book of Psalms, so beautiful, the book of Psalms in chapter 16, the good portion that David chose is God himself. So in Psalm 16, 2 and verse 5, it says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion. So Jesus, him, the true temple, God himself in the flesh is calling himself God. And Mary is beholding the face of God by beholding and sitting and looking at, gazing at the face of Jesus and drinking in his word. And this is the invitation of Jesus for all of us is to contemplate the glory of God made manifest in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, that we would, he is the true temple and he is God himself. And so we enter into and gaze and behold with love with Jesus and we behold his beauty, his glory and inquire in, in his temple and also uh, drink in his the words that he is speaking. So that's just a little taste on the fir- very first part, vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplation. And then the second part that he go- that Dr. Brant Petrie goes into is the spiritual path. And he here he has one, two, three, four, five, six chapters. The first one being the first step, which is repentance. Repentance, metanoia, to change our mind, to literally change our mind. And then he goes, uh, the uh, fifth chapter, the second chapter of this part is the Ten Commandments. The next is the Three Temptations, uh, the three temptations and this is um we talked about this in the past this is we see at the very beginning at right at the 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 root of the cause of the first fall of adam and eve and jesus is tempted by this by the devil and also first john picks this up and he calls calls this fall from adam and eve these three temptations are the lust of the flesh or seeking uh an an inordinate or disordered desire or pleasure and then pride of life or just pride and lust of the eyes, which is possessions, to possess something disorderly. And so he goes through the, those three temptations and then the three, uh, the three corresponding ways to, to directly um, fight against these three temptations, which is what Jesus himself does and Jesus himself teaches us, which is fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Fasting beats the lust of the flesh, which is pleasure. 
prayer beats the pride of life because we humbly go to God and we realize how weak and, f- and feeble we are and we need him for everything. And the third is almsgiving. Almsgiving directly uh, fights against that temptation of the lust of the eyes or to possess things um, in- inordinately. So Dr. Brant Petrie goes into those three things, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But the last chapter he devotes to the Lord's Prayer, the last chapter in that section, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, this perfect prayer of Jesus. And he breaks each of them down, uh, each statement down in beautiful ways. And then he goes into vices and virtues. And in this very first section, uh, the first chapter in this section on vices and virtues, he goes into an overview of the seven sins, of the capital seven sins, and how it's rooted in Jewish scripture. And the book of Proverbs even uh, says that there's seven abominations in a man's heart, and there's seven vices are in his soul. And then the book of Proverbs actually goes on to literally have throughout the entire book the seven capital sins and the seven opposing virtues in the book of Proverbs itself. But we'll pause there for a second and look at Jesus, what he says. And he even refers to, in Matthew 12, 43 through 45, in the parallel passage in, in Luke 11, 24 through 26, he talks about how an unclean spirit goes out of a man when he's uh, cleaned up. And, he, and this, this unclean spirit goes through waterless places seeking rest, but he finds none. And then it says that he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself. So there's this tradition that there's seven capital sins. But he also talks about how many people throughout Christian history or Christian tradition has uh, saw that there is an eighth uh, capital sin and opposing virtue. But predominantly, the it, it, and it's really driven by how people split split some of these out, but predominantly based on Jewish scripture, tradition, and also um there's in, in the West, uh, particularly in Christianity, it's seven capital sins and seven opposing virtues. But I want to talk about this eighth one. <laughs> but we'll give a list of all the things that he talks about. So each chapter from here, he goes on to talk about each of those capital sins and the opposing virtue. The first one being the capital sin of pride and how the, ca- the opposing virtue is humility. The second one is the capital sin of envy or being sad over others' possessions. Um, and the, the, the corresponding virtue is mercy. The third capital sin is anger. The thir- the, and that corresponding virtue is meekness or gentleness. The fourth capital sin is greed. And that's actually, he talks about the evil eye. The evil eye is a real thing in scripture, uh, in Jewish scripture. And Jesus even refers to it himself when talking about almsgiving. And corresponding to that is, is greed, this evil eye of wanting to take others' possessions or not giving away your own possessions to people who are in need. So greed. And the corresponding virtue to that is generosity, to give away uh, um, lavishly. The fifth, cor- uh, the fifth capital sin is lust. And the corresponding virtue is chastity, or to be pure in heart. And the sixth capital sin is gluttony, or indulging on food or drink, and which typically leads into all these other sins that we can't say no to, um, because we are not be able to... Uh, have temper temperament in our eating or our whatever our habits might be and that leads into a whole bunch of other things and the corresponding virtue to that is temperance and the seventh opposing uh, the seventh capital seventh capital sin is sloth or laziness or uh, uh, the Greek is acedia so sloth typically means to like physical la- laziness not doing your due diligence and not being attentive to your responsibilities and your duties such as work but also acedia means to be spiritually lazy And then the opposing virtue of that is diligence, being diligent in the responsibilities that we have. 
And what's really beautiful is, like, as we mentioned before, Dr. Brent Petrie, he goes through Jewish scripture, Jewish tradition, and then what Jesus says about it, and then uh, Christian uh, tradition through those capital sins and the opposing virtue. And each of those, he draws on the Beatitudes. So Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount of what Jesus says, be poor in spirit and to, to mourn over sin and to be meek and to be hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be a peace fit peacemaker and then also uh, elsewhere he talks about um, some of the the blessedness so when he says blessed are the pure in heart the blessed literally means to be happy and then uh, after that he talks about eternal life so like for example blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God and so the second part is eternal life but the first part is also not just how to get to eternal life but how, how to be happy in this life so blessed literally means to be happy so Jesus here in the Beatitudes talks about how to be happy in this life and to have eternal life in the next. And it's through these beautiful teachings in the, in the, Beati- in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere where Jesus talks about how um, it's to, to be blessed or to be happy. And so he goes through that. And then uh, I'll come back to this eighth capital sin <laughs> and the opposing virtue here in a second. But in the last section, this fourth section, is on making progress and he devotes five chapters to this the first one on examination of heart so examination of conscience the second chapter is lexio divina and jacob's ladder jacob's ladder in the old testament is jacob who becomes israel he sees this image of this ladder to heaven and it's actually more so is probably like a stair step up to heaven and how this corresponds to lexio divina lexio divina is this this practice, uh, and it's actually picking, picked up by this Jacob's Ladder because it's kind of, uh, it's in this beautiful rhythm of prayer and intimacy with God. And the first part is to read, is to read the Word of God, to read um, Scripture. And then it's to meditate on the Word of God. So we just soak in it, we think about it. And then it's, then it's to pray, so actually speaking to God about it. And then the last one is contemplation. So those four steps of Lexio Divina have become the traditional way of how to read Scripture. We read Scripture, we meditate on it, we talk about it, and then we contemplate. We just behold the face of God, behold and gaze at Him with love as He gazes upon us. And what's really beautiful about that is Dr. Brant Petrie also draws this, uh, this, this ladder, this Jacob's ladder, to not only contemplate, contemplative prayer in our own personal lives with scripture, but also the mass. The mass is this Lexio Divina, because what do we do at mass? First, we read, we hear the word of God, and then the priest gives a homily, or is to meditate on the scriptures themselves to be able to soak them in. And then what do we do after that? We pray. We pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the fourth part is communion is contemplation, this gaze of love, this beholding to seek the face of God and to be in his presence in a powerful, tangible way in the Eucharist. And so Lexio Divina is both uh, in our individual prayer lives every single day, we have to do it, or and at Mass, it, this Lexio Divina, to read, to meditate, to pray, and to contemplate. And then the, then he, the, his last three chapters on the, on the battle of prayer, the dark night of the soul, and the living water, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Jesus calling us in as he called in um, the woman at the well, that he says, I thirst. And he says that there, give me a drink for water. And then he says at the cross, I thirst. And he says the same thing for us. He invites us in to give us he wants to give us that living water and he thirsts for our salvation. He thirsts for our intimacy. He thirsts for us to come to the well. He's waiting there for us. And so 
this beautiful book. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's a very easy read, and it's actually it's still very uh, like in depth. So it's very beautiful. So the whole point of this, um, the whole point of this episode was on this eighth capital center and an opposing virtue. But I hope this also gave a little taste of this book in general and Dr. Brant Petrie, who is a boss. <laughs> He's one of my favorite theologians and uh, apologists. So. Uh, this eighth capital sin in opposing virtue might come as a surprise, but it's sorrow, sorrow being a capital sin. So, and the opposing virtue is patience. The opposing virtue is patience. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus says, how can you be happy and be, and be mournful? (laughs) So I want to break this down a little bit. So sinful sorrow can be spiritually deadly. So like any other emotion, sorrow is just a feeling. So on the level of mere emotion, it is neither good nor evil. It's neutral, right? But it's how we respond to that. In the the Bible, in scripture, there is a distinction between two kinds of sorrows. The first one is godly sorrow, which is good. And then the second one is a worldly sorrow, which is evil. And St. Paul picks up on these two sorrows or these two griefs in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. And so St. Paul picks up on these two distinctions between a godly grief and a worldly sorrow or a worldly grief, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And so, as we just heard from St. Paul, is that this, this godly sorrow uh, is, leads to a trust in God and eternal life. On the other hand, worldly sorrow is an irrational response to evil, suffering, or loss. It is rooted in pride and a disordered love for the things of this world. It overly reacts to the loss of earthly goods and the frustration of worldly desires. It does not lead to repentance, but to regret that things have not gone according to our will. So it's all about us, this, this, uh, this worldly sorrow, and this worldly sorrow um, is in Jewish scriptures and in the book of Proverbs again. So the book of Job is a beautiful example that uh, Dr. Brant Petrie um, holds up as an example is Job and his wife. So Job is a godly man who, uh, in the in the book, he's a very faithful man. He he's righteous in God's eyes, and yet Satan tells God that if I did all these evil things to him, he would actually curse you. But he falls and takes away, and uh, God allows Satan to, to not hurt him, but but to take away the things that all these things that he has, and yet he's faithful to him. And so this is the distinction between him and his wife, though, because his wife is the one that shows the worldly sorrow, Job the godly sorrow. So this is what it says in uh, in Job. Then Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, by the way, this is after he lost almost all of his possessions. So he's blessing the God. He's blessing God. And it says right after that, that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But the next uh, chapter, in chapter 2 of Job, it says, Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and just die. But he said to her, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So the tearing of one's garments and shaving of one's head, which Job did, is the customary sign of extreme grief. At the same time, Job's sorrow does not lead him to sin. He never accuses God of doing anything wrong. Instead, Job's sorrow leads him to pray. Job 
Job thanks God for his blessings and humbly accepts that suffering God has permitted. In direct contrast to that is the worldly sorrow of Job's wife, which leads her to blasphemy. Her infamous words, curse God and die, may be the clearest description of sinful sorrow anywhere in the Bible. So her sorrow has led her to despair and to hate God himself. And then in the book of Proverbs, it talks about how the sorrow of heart, uh, the sorrow of a heart is is when the spirit is broken or a broken spirit dries up the bones and sorrow harms the heart it says so sadness kills the person from within and then jesus and there's two parts that dr brent petrie pulls out with the examples of jesus it's jesus in the garden of gethsemane and jesus speaking to the rich young man who chose not to follow jesus and so Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'll pull out just a few few verses here. This is in Matthew 26, 36 through 44. But he tells his disciples that sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to them, he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. And so there's talks about Jesus being sorrowful, and yet it's not sinful. Why? Because Jesus responds by praying. So in direct contrast to that is that his disciples are sleeping. In the parallel verse of this in Luke 22, verse 45, it literally says that the disciples were sleeping for sorrow. (laughs) The disciples fell asleep they were sleeping for sorrow. So Jesus' sorrow drives him to pray fervently to the Father, where he was even sweating blood, where the disciples' sorrow overcomes them, so they fall into prayer. They, they fail to pray, and they fall asleep. And so Jesus actually draws him closer to the Father, not away from it, when he feels that sorrow. And then the other example is the rich young man, who he comes to Jesus and saying, he asks him, what should I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him all the these the, the part of the Ten Commandments that has to do with loving your neighbor and he says all these I have done and Jesus says if you would be perfect go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me and it says disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions so he his disheartenedness or his gloominess it turns him away and he goes away sorrowful or grieving because he has great possessions. So the reason the young man is sad is because he loves his possessions more than he loves Jesus. And so this is a sinful, worldly sorrow. And this affects all of us because we live in a broken world. But what we must do is to recognize and to acknowledge that there is going to be times where we have this temptation to fall into worldly sorrow. And yet the followers of Jesus, we, we have to realize that we will experience sorrow. Jesus himself tells us this in John sixteen twenty: You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your soul will turn and your sorrow will, will turn into joy. So sorrow is inescapable and no one makes it out of this world alive. So no one leaves without getting wounded. And so 
this spirit of sadness, though, that com- comes over us that leads us to stop praying, if it leads us to stop praying, it's a worldly sorrow and it leads us to sin. If we stop praying because of our sorrow, we are sinning. <laughs> and so when we have sorrow, we have to ask the God, God for the gift of patience, patience, which is to bear the sufferings and evils of this life without giving into bitterness. Patience. And the Latin word for patience literally means it, it, the root word of it is to suffer, to suffer. So patience protects the heart from abandoning God, and it has been called the root and guardian of all the virtues. So patience must be given by God. It is not something we can achieve on our own power. And uh, the book of James does a beautiful, has a beautiful image about Job, who we already read. In his, uh, James 5, 10 through 11, he holds up Job as an example. It says, an exam- As an example of suffering and patience, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we call those those who happy who are steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So the happiness of Job did not come from the absence of pain, but from his trust in the purposes of the Lord. In other words, true patience is ultimately rooted in love. So uh, Augustine, he's, Saint Augustine said, "The greater the charity of God that the saints possess, the more do they endure all things for Him whom they love." So love and love is patient. Love endures all things. This is part of the list of the what Saint Paul describes what love is in First Corinthians thirteen four through seven. Love is patient, and love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And then, lastly. The beautiful beatitude with this is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, that Greek word for blessed are those is literally for happy. To be happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So how this seems like a this is a paradoxical statement of Jesus, because he's calling us as his disciples to view all of our sorrows, to view all of our sufferings in the view that God is trustworthy and in our sufferings he's there but also that he promises us eternal life. So it's viewing all these things in an eternal perspective. St. John Cassian said, We shall be able to overcome every kind of sadness when we are ever rejoicing at the sight of things eternal. And when we remain steadfast and are neither cast down by present events nor carried away by good fortune, viewing both as empty and soon to pass. And so it's no coincidence that the rich young man who went away uh, from Jesus was sad. The reason is because he loved the things of this world more than he loved the God who gave them to him. So he failed to realize that everything he possessed was nothing in comparison to eternal life. And so this beautiful gift of patience and the beautiful gift of the perspective of Jesus that in Christ we are filled with every every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but also we are uh, called to be in communion with God, the creator of the entire time, space, history, and uh, creation itself. That's better than all of these things, far more eternal, and that the gift giver wants us to give himself to us more than the gifts that he's given us, such as our houses, our comforts, our clothes, the food that we have. He's better than all those. And so we press on to the God who loves us, and the God who does not pass away will be able to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things with patience to overcome that that, that vice, that capital sin of a worldly sorrow, this grief that leads to spiritual death. And so, uh, yeah, this was very, um, and just like this chapter, this chapter was very convicting. 
all of them are, especially the ones on prayer, fasting, and alms giving. My goodness, it's no joke what Jesus says about them. And so, uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful book. I just wanted to highlight just this, this book in general, promote it, promote Dr. Brant Petrie. He's been a huge blessing to me. And, uh, but also that eighth capital uh, sin and the opposing virtue is really powerful. So I hope this was a blessing to you. God bless you. Mary keep you. May the Holy Spirit fill you today with the brand new gift of just greater intimacy with God, that you would seek his face, that you would enter into his temple, behold his beauty and his glory, inquire about his word, and to just soak in his presence and see God face to face. God bless you. Mm-hmm.